I was left in a situation where, you know, I'm this real estate guy. I was a real estate lawyer. My life is all about real estate. And, you know, real estate is like poison because of the market at the time. My family's resources are, you know, greatly depleted. And now we've got this business with a product that nobody wants to buy. So we basically pivoted at the time. We didn't, you know, I don't even know if the word existed at right, least in right. our vocabulary, but we went through sort of a paradigm shift. We, you know, I sort of visualized myself as a real estate guy, but then I realized and we realized that we were deal guys that, you know, real estate was the first commodity. I and mean, we actually raised money and closed every deal in pretty tough times. Imagine if we had a commodity to sell that people really wanted. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, Everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Jeff Dennis is the Faskin Martineau's entrepreneur in residence. He is a lawyer, serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, and public speaker. And as Faskin's EIR, he works with fast-growth entrepreneurial companies, assisting them with commercialization strategy and finance, and of course, their legal requirements. Jeff co-founded the Toronto chapter of Young Entrepreneurs Organization, now called Entrepreneurs Organization, through his association with EO and the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. He co-authored his book, Lessons from the Edge in which entrepreneurs share their worst mistakes in business and the lessons they learned. Jeff has become a sought-after public speaker by entrepreneurial groups around the world. His most exotic audience was the EO chapter in Kathmandu, Nepal. Jeff earned his undergraduate degree in economics at Brown University and law degree from the University of Western Ontario. He is a graduate of both the Birthing of Giants Executive Education Program at MIT and the Director's Education Program at the Institute of Corporate Directors and the Rotman School of Business at the University of Toronto and was awarded his ICCDD certification. Jeff, welcome. Thanks. That's a mouthful. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. No, it's all good. And, you know, you and I have so many commonalities in terms of, you know, our EO background, being president of a chapter, having visited our friends from the EO chapter in Kathmandu, being a professional speaker. So, you know, I'm super excited to have you on. And, you know, and we're both lawyers, you know, you in Canada, me in the U.S., So there's a lot of commonalities. Uh, But before we get to all that and your deal-making experience, I'm going to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because maybe it was a lawyer, maybe it wasn't. And my guess is speaker and entrepreneur and residence and whatever, those things might not have been on the table when you were a kid. You tell me. Oh, I had no idea what I was going to be. I mean, I I, I think I was going to be a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer and there was a lot of sort of role modeling and encouragement to go to law school. But my dad also started a business or got involved with a family business. So there was some entrepreneurial, you know, genes and gene pool. I really didn't know what I was going to be at that time. That's a good question. 
you should ask me to think about it beforehand. <laughs> no, it's all, all good. I mean, some, sometimes people have a very specific memory, and you know, and, and sometimes they don't. And you know, but yeah, uh, I know there's so there's so many entrepreneurs that are kind of born entrepreneurs, and they've got paper roots, and you know, hustling their friends and all that sort of. I wasn't that kid, and I came to entrepreneurship, I suppose, by I won't say accident, but it was thrust upon me. I thought I was going to be the leader of the next generation of my family business. And then circumstances changed and the hands were dealt differently. And so I really had to reinvent myself early on in my career. And, you know, entrepreneurship seemed to be the thing to do at the time. And the rest is history. And I've spent the better part of my life as an entrepreneur. I love that. And we're going to talk about that some more because that is you know, not the usual path for a lot of our colleagues as lawyers. And I, I, while I still have a law firm, all my listeners know that I'm an entrepreneur in many ways, not only having my own law firm, but other businesses and things like that. So you and I have that in common. But let me ask you one more question, thinking back. What was your first deal of any type, whether it was whether you're a kid or older or whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be anything major. Just what, what kind of, anything you describe as a deal? Do you have a memory? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, my folks, my dad, had been sort of trying to groom my siblings and I f- for leadership in our family business. And there was a an opportunity to start a business as almost like, you know, to cut our teeth, if you will. And um, my siblings, there's four of us, and I started a restaurant, uh, mm-hmm. which we called the 4D's Diner, you know, 4D's, four dentists. And, but it was also like 1940s because it was an old school diner. And it, we built it from scratch empty lot on a property that my family owned. And we ultimately, you know, was a quite a successful restaurant. My brother who was interested in hospitality was the operator. I was kind of the lawyer putting the deal together, uh, you know, working out the lease with my father, uh, working out financing, getting zoning. And then we ended up in this terrible dispute with our next door neighbor which at the time was Cineplex, the big film company. Yeah, yeah movie theaters, yeah. Movie theaters. And yeah. they owned a theater beside us, and they were going, they were renovating it and tearing it down and building. They were going to build this huge project in downtown Toronto. And our restaurant relied a lot on an outdoor patio on the roof. And their debris and construction and whatever rained down on us, and they basically put us out of business. And we decided that our only leverage with these guys, other than suing them or something, was to stick a spoke in their zoning application and use that as leverage to get them to compensate us for the problem we had. And that was a good strategy because we ended up getting them to agree to guarantee our revenue based on the prior year's revenue and put up a letter of credit to secure it and then on the strength of that, my brothers and sister and I sold the business uh, <laughs> to a very seasoned restaurant operator who then, you know, took advantage of the fact that, you know, once the construction, everything was over, they had this runway of cash flow. So it was early on in my career. I don't think I was 30 at the time, but it was a pretty clever deal looking back at that. I love it. I love it. I love it. So let's go from there because you alluded to this and, you know, prior to uh, going on air, uh, you and I had a little, you know, brief conversation and you were bringing me up to speed, uh, you know, on how somebody who is uh, a lawyer ends up being an entrepreneur and then ends up doing deals and then ends up selling companies and, you know, ends up now as an entrepreneur residence at a law firm. 
So give us a little bit of the history. Talk about some of the major, you know, uh, I know you had a, a company you sold. Uh, so, you know, give, give us some of that history so uh, people can get to know you a little better here. Yeah, so I, I am a lawyer by education, practiced briefly a long time ago, but in the late 80s, started a business. We initially were going to be in real estate. We're registered with the Ontario Securities Commission as a limited market dealer, or today you'd call it an exempt market dealer. And we were authorized to raise capital for various projects from accredited investors, high net worth people. And we started with real estate and we syndicated real estate and then the real estate market crashed Mm. here in the early 90s. And um, it had a very significant impact, not only on our little business, which had just really gotten going, but also on my family business. And so I was left in a situation where, you know, I'm this real estate guy, I was a real estate lawyer, my life is all about real estate. And, you know, real estate is like poison because of the market at the time. Uh, my own, my family's resources are, you know, greatly depleted. And now we've got this business with a product that nobody wants to buy. So we basically pivoted at the time. We didn't, you know, I don't even know if the word existed at right, least in right. our vocabulary, but we went through sort of a paradigm shift. We, you know, I sort of visualized myself as a real estate guy, but then I realized and we realized that we were deal guys, that, you know, real estate was the first commodity. And we actually raised money and closed every deal in pretty tough times. Imagine if we had a commodity to sell that people really wanted. (laughs) And so that, you know, that I know it sounds obvious, but at the time you kind of have this view of who you are and what you know, and we were young too at the time, but going through that sort of paradigm shift and that pivot, it really opened up the whole world to us. And so we started looking for other types of, investments that we could create and and offer to investors. And over the years, we financed film and television productions, oil, gas, mining investments. I was in the franchise business. We were in the cosmetics business. We had a stock and bond mutual fund brokerage business and insurance company. So over the years, you know, I just had this really wide breadth of experience. And I was kind of the because I was the lawyer, I was sort of the adult supervision in the business and my colleagues and partners were more on the sales side. So I dealt with the lawyers and did the deals and negotiated and dealt with the accountants and, you know, answered to investors. And when things went bad, you know, went in and restructured it or brought in new management or, you know, sold it into bankruptcy or whatever it took. So over, you know, 25 plus years, I've, I've had this pretty diverse experience. And in parallel with that, because I had no formal business training, I'd gone to law school, not business school, I was looking for continuing education for business and entrepreneurship. And and I stumbled upon EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, and and really drank the Kool-Aid and got very involved. And as you said, I became a leader, not only locally, but I was on the international board. And then ultimately, I ended up writing this book called Lessons from the Edge, which 17 years ago was kind of a big deal. I had my 15 minutes of fame and it was a bestseller. And it just gave me this opportunity to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs all over the world, uh, including the EO chapter in Kathmandu. So that, you know, and then I kind of sold my business around that time. And so here I am, this self-proclaimed business guru, I guess, and I have no business, no plan, and should have read chapter one <laughs> um, of my own book. Um, but 
Anyhow, I started doing some angel investing and I worked with a bunch of early stage companies to help them on commercialization and raise capital and really just share what I had learned. And ultimately, uh, because I had been looking not so much for a job, but because I hadn't had one since 1989, and this is now 2012, I stumble on a buddy of mine who's a partner at Faskin, one of Canada's largest, uh, oldest law firms. And they, at the time, were trying to figure out how does big traditional law do business with these emerging tech and entrepreneurial fast growth companies often have complex legal needs, but don't have the money to afford a fancy white shoe law firm. And so I joined them as their entrepreneur in residence to figure that out. And that's what I've done over the last eight years, working with, you know, early stage companies, helping them finance themselves, sell themselves, take them go, take them public in the right instances. And so I'm just in the middle of a lot of transactions just all the time. You know, there's so much in that. I want to break some of it down and, and sort of going backwards, you know, it's funny what popped into my mind when you said, uh, you know, how does a big law firm, uh, you know, this isn't specific to any big law firm, including yours, right? But you said, you know, how does a big law firm deal with, you know, startup, you know, tech companies, you know, and uh, whatever. And the first word that came to my mind was poorly, because that's usually that's usually the case. It's usually a, it's just not a, the right fit. You have so to, uh, yeah, you have yeah. to be dedicated to it. The issue is the hourly rate, right? Like law firms are built on hourly rates and no entrepreneur wants to pay hourly rates. You have this fundamental problem there. And so what I did and, you know, took some convincing and was hard because, you know, you're trying to get an old traditional organization to make changes. But we moved to a a fixed fee, almost like a subscription, you know, SaaS model where people pay us monthly. I call it last lawyer as a service. <laughs> and so we would create sort of fixed fee packages where we would incorporate the company, organize the company, give them a shareholders agreement, put in place employment contracts, independent contractor agreements, you know, an employee stock option plan, a intellectual property assignment. We'd put, you know, a package together of X dollars and they'd pay us, you know, so much per month. Most of the other things that would come up, we would do, you know, also on a fixed fee basis. So if somebody needed, you know, terms of service for their website or they needed, you know, a developer agreement or they got to file a patent or whatever they need, I was able to build a fixed fee arrangement for them and provide some level of financing. So they had time to pay sometimes out of the closing of a financing and so we became, you know, startup friendly and early stage friendly. And we've literally, like nationally, we've literally had hundreds of these companies come through our program. Every vertical, I mean, healthcare, clean tech, fintech, games, crypto, cannabis, I mean, you name it. That's amazing. And, you know, that, that's another thing that actually, uh, you know, I wasn't aware you and I have in common in that we do a lot of, I mean, there's certain things you can't do, but we, we do a lot of what we do also on a fixed fee basis. And fundamentally, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but, you know, we'll spend a minute on the whole uh, hourly billing model. You know, I always felt the problem with the hourly billing model, and again, if, you know, certain negotiated things, certainly people litigate, which is not where I focus. You know, there are certain things that, that you can't do. But a lot of the stuff that we do, where you're doing stuff, you do it over and over again a lot. You know, the hourly billing model actually, you know, is a disincentive to efficiency. Because if you do a lot of work in advance to create great templates, forms, you know, Think, you know, ways you can work, efficiencies, et cetera, you make less money because you're billing, you build fewer hours. Whereas if you create fair fixed fees for clients on certain things, then you have an incentive to really create the models and the systems that make it efficient for them and also keep it, 
you know, best documents and best practices. And, you know, and, and it's not this thing of why am I going to do all that unpaid work to make less money because I'm making it more efficient. So you and I are so aligned on that. It's a lot of what we do with our clients as well here in the U.S. Yeah, I agree with you. But I, I would also say that, I mean, I can only speak for FASC and, you know, we were very far up the curve in terms of technology. And yeah. so, A, with the pandemic, it was a, actually a pretty easy transition. But also, you know, you talk about templates and, you know, automation and and we've embraced all that. I mean, we, we have a chief innovation officer as an executive position in the firm whose job it is, is to implement technology to make the practice more efficient. So, you know, we've been at the leading edge of that. And, you know, I take some small pride in maybe being part of that or inspiring it in some way. And listen, every industry is being disrupted and, you know, lawyers are no different. And so there's changes happening and there's more to come for sure. And clients want certainty and they want transparency. They don't value the hour. They value the end product, just like everybody else. That's right. And they should. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. All right. So I want to go back now because there's a lot in what you said in your history. Uh, So one is, you know, you started out doing some real estate deals, which I've done in the past. And it's funny, you talked about the timing because I put together some real estate funds uh, in 2007, six, seven, and of course, 2008, you know, nine. Yeah. Big, big I, I, missed, I missed that one, thankfully. Yeah, well, but, yeah. good for you. Yeah, because we were doing a bit of, we had done some nice deals and, you know, and in fact, we actually tried to get our investors to double or triple down because we knew we had bought well, you know, it was a high market and we knew if we could come through it, we'd be great. And we also do that the same buildings. We were doing some multi, multifamily residential. We had done a couple of condo conversions, but then we do multifamily. And we could buy those same multifamily buildings at 30, 40% discount. And we knew that they they modeled out nicely the minute things came back. You know, but people run so scared sometimes, right? In those situations. And they, of course, when they should be investing, they don't. But talk to me about, you know, I love to, because whether it's in real estate or whether it's companies raising capital, and, you know, of course, you come across this now, but you also have the personal experience of being involved in it. The whole idea of raising money from other people, creates all kinds of things, not only in terms of the legal structure and their rights and preferences, but also like it's, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and uh, other people fundamentally don't understand that they're in a, you know, for them personally, things change, the world changes. And the ability to, you know, deal with investors and, you know, properly is, you know, is is sort of a skill and a decision that changes the path of your entrepreneurial journey. Thoughts on that? Oh, I totally agree. I always say to my clients and you know, mentees, that if you're going to take other people's money, there's going to be a pound of flesh that you're going to have to pay. And each type of investor will have a different sort of situation that you're going to have to live with. You know, if you go public, all of a sudden, you know, you're talking to analysts and you're answering to investors. And now the CEO has got a second full-time job. He doesn't just run the company, but he's now running the stock. Right. If you take on venture capital investors, 
you know, they've got a timeline. They've got to exit their fund in, you know, eight years or five years or whatever's left in the life of the fund. So you're going to have to get them some sort of exit and turn over their money before that time frame. You know, if you're not matching their expectations and you don't hit your projections, you could be, you know, on the outside looking in pretty quickly and so on. So, you know, as soon as you take other people's money, there's a pound of flesh to be paid and you just got to understand what you're getting yourself into. And some people aren't, you know, cut out for some of those roles and not to be critical, but, you know, it takes a real leader to look at themselves in the mirror and understand, you know, what their strengths are, what their superpower is and to surround themselves with a team that enables them to do whatever it is they want to do. But, you know, there's that fundamental question, you know, what do you see this business being down the road and what's the vision for it? And, you know, what's that life looks like? You know, are you going to be flying around doing, you know, uh, road shows to investors? Is that how you want to live your life? Or do you want to be, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but that, I think that's the first question. And ego sometimes gets into it and people lose sight of, you know, why they're in business in the first place, which is, you know, to provide for their family and to, you know, have a nest egg. And, you know, so people kind of lose sight of that sometimes because they get into the ego thing or the, you know, who's got the big balls or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I talk about that as well. And, you know, and it's, you know, to me, it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's provide for their family, especially as an entrepreneur. I always say, you know, it's really to create the life we want for us and the people we care about. Right. And I see too many people, like losing track of that. And you're right. It's, you know, it's ego and it's, and listen, we even, EO is such an amazing, they're such an amazing community, like super generous, helpful. You know, I like you feel it was transformational, but you know, even in EO, we some, see some of our colleagues, it's, you know, like the keeping up with like, you know, there's this automatic thing. You got to grow, you got to grow, you got to grow. And I always ask why, you know, and by the way, I'm not, I mean, my business continue to grow. I'm not anti-growth. I'm actually, but, you know, the question is pace of growth. What are you going to do? Do you want to raise money to accelerate that growth? You know, have you really thought through what that's going to do? Are you still going to be doing what you love? Are you going to be not, never seeing your family because you're on, you know, traveling on road shows? And for some people, you know, those are all choices that they make. I make this argument, you know, lifestyle business is, is uh, like a, uh, a curse, that, you know, for some people. Oh, you just have a lifestyle business. My argument is everybody should have a lifestyle business. Now, if the lifestyle business you want is raising, you know, multiple rounds of capital and going public and traveling around the world, then that's fine, you know, but why are we becoming entrepreneurs if we're not going to create the life we want? Exactly. And, uh, and, you know, at different times in your life and career, different things seem more appropriate. Like at this stage in my life, I'm not looking to run around the country, especially with the pandemic, but, you know, I, I'm happy to have a lifestyle business that, you know, I could run with a laptop and be anywhere. I mean, you and I were talking about how you structure your affairs. I mean, that's my goal in terms of my next transformation. My objective is to build a portfolio of companies that I help as a board member or advisor in a paid role. And, you know, I can kind of do that from home or anywhere in the world and have a lifestyle business so that I can keep busy and generate some income because, you know, I'm not really that ambitious at this stage in my life. Yeah. So talk to me about, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is that, you know, at the point at which you were doing the real estate uh, investing and then you realized that, wait a second, I'm not a real estate guy. Uh, you know, I was thinking of myself as a real estate guy, but I'm really a deal maker and I can play those deal making skills elsewhere. 
You know, one of the things I also often talk about is that, you know, being a deal maker is a mindset, right? You know, the first thing, you know, there are so many companies that struggle to grow organically, right? Try to increase sales, sell more market, you know, and they should. You got to be able to sell a product or service, right? And have somebody be willing to buy it. But they don't do deals because they don't know it. They're afraid of it, whatever it is. You know, I think everything is a mindset shift to start with. So you got into the real estate side and maybe that was more natural because of what you came out of. But at some point you had to have a mindset shift there to say, wait a second, I'm not just a real estate guy. And so can you delve into that a little bit more? Like, I mean, and maybe some well, of the necessity you, to if you, you, but you know. It was, a, it, it, I mean, I listen, for most people selling their business or buying a business, it's like buying a house. It's, or, you know, it's that big investment that you do once or twice in your life. Yes. And so it's scary, right? And you don't know how to do it and you need to surround yourself with good advisors. But if you're in the business of doing deals, so you're either a private equity guy or a venture capital person or you're a lawyer or you're an investment banker and you just do deals all day, every day, and you know you develop those muscles and that expertise and that skill. So, you know, not everybody's cut out for it, mostly because not everybody's been exposed to it. And so I think, you know, it's hard too to do roll-ups and do acquisitions because the easy part is the deal. The hard part is the integration of the two businesses and, yes. you know, keep building a culture. And so, you know, a lot of people that are on the other side that come from the deal side minimize how significant operations and integration and culture and all that stuff is because they're just looking to do the next deal. That's right. And then on the other hand, you got the entrepreneur whose blood, sweat and tears have gone into the business, their vision, their, their culture, their people, their, everybody on the bus is their A team and all that. And it's a culture clash. And that's why I say, I think you really got to understand, you know, who you are and what your objectives are and what the vision is for the business. You know, there's growth by organic growth. There's growth through acquisition. You know, you can raise public money. I mean, you can raise private venture capital. But you got to, A, look at the business, look at the industry, who else is in the market, and what is right for you. In terms of companies that end up doing deals, and, and it could be raising capital, it could be uh, doing M&A, it could be, uh, you know, we talk on the, everything about this show on strategic alliances, you name it. You know, and, and maybe, you know, you can limit it to the stuff you do most, whether it's capital raising or deals. What are the major things they do, you know, when they do it right, what are the major things they do right? And some of the things you probably what you alluded to is getting the integration and cultural fit right afterwards. What are also some of the common mistakes that people make? What's the biggest uh, thing they do wrong? Well, I think selling's hard, period. To find the buyer, to get the buyer to write the check. I mean, it's harder to be a seller than a buyer. If you've got money, you can always buy, right? Yeah. I mean, something. But getting to, you know, finding a seller or finding a buyer by a seller, that's tougher to do. And for these entrepreneurs where it's their baby, it's their, you know, that's their blood, sweat and tears. When they let go, that what's next is a tough thing because, you know, are you really the serial entrepreneur that you think you are? Or were you really good in that industry where you had deep knowledge and relationships? What's your unique ability? What's your superpower? And I think people, sometimes they've got some money and then they jump into deals without really being deal people and, and knowing how to do due diligence and knowing how to take a strategic look at a business. And because they just, you know, they not there's anything to diminish it, but they ran and built a business in an industry. It's very different than being in the business of doing deals, buying businesses, integrating businesses. It's a different skill set. Yeah. Now, some people are good at making that transition 
but a lot of people aren't happy. Like I've got a guy right now, I got you to have four clients right now who are looking to buy businesses. Two of them had exits uh, late last year and like are <laughs> they're climbing the walls with their families <laughs> after the COVID right. and they want to get back into the saddle. Right. And uh, one's a sort of a private equity investor, so maybe not the mm -hmm. same. And then the other two lawyers actually want to get out <laughs> and buy and find a business. It's interesting. I, I don't know if you know, you, you only may know him because of the EO connection and uh, MIT, but uh, I've got a good friend and client, EO, EO New York guy, Damon Gersh. Uh, I know Damon. Okay, great. So, uh, so Damon, uh, I had him on, uh, I don't, listeners, I don't have his, uh, uh, the episode list in front of me, but he was on maybe a year ago, so one of the earlier episodes. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked to Damon about, not only on the podcast, but off, is that, you know, he's made a decision at this point, you know, he runs a, a, um, a restoration company, disaster restoration company, and he really, really made his, his mark, although he had a successful company before that in cleaning up a lot after 9-11. And you should check out that episode. It's a great story that he tells about that, which I won't repeat here, listeners. But, you know, one of the things that uh, Damon, and he's not alone, but I just happened to mention him because I figured you might know him. He said, you know, he thought about selling his business and he just knows a lot, a number of people who sold their business and, uh, you know, are sort of like unhappy about it. I mean, they did very well, maybe economically, but they, they don't know what to do with themselves. And then, yeah, they throw money into other companies, which, you know, they, they're not, you know, the, being the skill of an investor in other companies is very different than running your own company. And sometimes they're not really good at that. And Damon's view is, listen, I, I have such a great company here. I'd rather reinvest in that. Why am I going to pull my money of that? And, you know, so he created just a phenomenal management team that runs the thing. You know, he can go take summers in Europe, those days when we were allowed to be in Europe. But, uh, you know, he's not tied to his business. He creates good income for him. There may be a, come a point in his life when he'll sell it. But, you know, as a you know, guy, you know, he was like, you know, I've just seen too many people sell it. And then they, they start investing in other people's businesses. And he says, it's not for me. I'd rather run this thing and, you know, and just create some freedom. So he made a different choice there. Uh, yeah. And I know Damon, he's actually a story in my book, Oh, that's believe it or not. Funny. So, yeah. So it is a small world. I haven't talked to him in depth in a long time, so I don't want to kind of guess what he's thinking, but it's kind of the same theme that I was talking about, which is, you know, people are good at running businesses. They're not necessarily good at buying businesses or in being investors or, you know, like it's different skill sets. And, so I think, you know, I suppose Damon looked himself in the mirror and really knows himself and knows what makes him tick and has built a business and a lifestyle that suits that. And I think that's the ultimate goal for, for anybody should be. So I admire, you know, that approach and I'm glad he's doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, he's doing, he's doing really well. What other sort of just, you know, general deal lessons along the way? would you have so for people who are, you know, we, in terms of our listeners, we have people who are, you know, do a lot of deals. And then we have, you know, some of our listeners that come on and we're trying to figure out, Hey, you know, how do I do deals? What, what kind of deals can I, any just general thoughts and lessons? On the buy side, you know, a lot of people who are starting a business or acquiring a business or, you know, working with new partners on a new venture, they often spend and understandably so spend all their time, on the excitement of the new opportunity mm -hmm. and they don't spend any time on, you know, who are these partners I'm getting into bed with and what are their values and what are their expectations and what is their ethics and what is their work ethic. And often, you know, you get so horny for the deal and excited to do the deal that you lose sight of some of these more intangible, but important things because when the deal's closed, 
you know, your partners. <laughs> and so, you know, for some of this stuff, you can't look at it as a transaction. You can't look at it, you know, if you're just selling and walking away, that's one thing. But in most instances, especially when you're an acquirer, you know, this, you're buying a relationship and you're buying a package of relationships. And so I just guess I'm saying that one of the biggest mistakes is not doing enough due diligence on that aspect, on the human side and understanding your partners and shareholders and just, you know, not really understanding everyone's expectations and then getting into trouble down the road because, you know, you were so focused on the excitement of the business, but then once, you know, things start to unfold, people were not at the same mind and they didn't agree. You just thought you agreed and now you've got all sorts of frictions. And I see a lot of that too. Yeah. You know, listen, uh, regular DealQuest listeners will know that those are very familiar themes. The other thing I see a lot is angel investors who are resented down the road, mm. who, who got too good a deal. Yes. And founders forget how desperate they were to find that first, you know, 250 or half a million dollars. And, you know, they were, they would have given their, you know, firstborn child at the time, but, you know, they gave up 15 or 20%. And then, you know, all of a sudden it looks like they really made a bad deal. But, you know, with revisionist history, they forget where they came from and they, and you end up in these kind of conflicts that I think are unnecessary. I mean, and that's, you know, the other thing is people who particularly raising capital as opposed to buying and selling, you know, I always say to my clients who are out raising capital, you will never own more of the business than you will today. Right. Okay. Like you're on a slippery slope here of dilution. And so like, let's map this out. Let's look at the cap table and okay, next round, 3 million for 15% and another round 10 million for 40%. Like, you know, what are you going to be left with? Is this, are you going to be happy at the end of this? Is this really what you want to do? And let's rethink this or at least confirm that you're not just on this ego driven treadmill. I had a client whose dream it was in his vision. He did a vivid vision and in his vision, it was to be financed by Sequoia, you know, mm -hmm. the granddaddy of the VCs in Silicon Valley. Yep. And if you talk to this guy now, he did it. He made it. He got yeah. it. 25 yeah. million. Met his dream. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it just wasn't what he thought it was going to be. <laughs> and if you asked him today, he, he, if he could have done it all over again, he wouldn't have taken the money. Um, yeah. Now, he might not have been able to sell it for what he sold it for. And, sure. You know, like, it's easy to do it revisionist history and you know so who knows what he would have done but i just think you, people should think these things through before they just get excited and horny about the opportunity and about the relationship and the ego and you know do it for the right reasons no question and and listen i you hear all these stories about especially in public companies or whatever or even in venture back private companies whether you know the founder got pushed out and, and listen sometimes there's some dishonesty and strategies going on there and i'm not just you know nickel and every dime but you know, a lot of times I look at it and I think about it and, you know, at every point that founder made a decision to raise more capital, pollute themselves further, give up more board seats or other controls or whatever it is, right? Like nobody forced them to do that. You know, they might have felt pressure to force to do that because of the market and they, you know, that's the only, that's what they had to do, raise capital. But I believe we're all a choice, right? You know, it's always a series of choices a founder makes that puts them in that risk, that risk position. And if they don't understand it, that is always going to be a risk of doing that if they go that route then, you know, they're deluding themselves. I agree. The other phenomenon I'm seeing, and it's, I don't know, I don't want to call it a millennial thing, 
but I'm a little older than you are. When I started my business, I'm sure when you started your business, like you needed somewhere between zero and half a million dollars to turn the key on at your office, right. you know, to start a business, to buy inventory, furniture, employees, yes. you know, health, like you needed cap, capital, you needed money. Right. Why are Today, computers, you know, why are computers right. later like that? You know, as servers right. in your office and all that stuff. Right. File folders and yeah. filing cabinet, like all that stuff. And today, you can run your business with your laptop. So people wrongly believe that you don't need capital to start a business. Yeah. And so they're grossly undercapitalized, and they've got this concept, and they're you know doing the seed round where they're giving up twenty percent for five hundred thousand. Then they're going to do Series A, and by the time they're done, they own nothing. And they're working for venture capital. Why? Because they were undercapitalized and they, you know, did deals to push the business forward. And so I just think people have to be realistic when they start businesses that you have to find capital. Like zero capital is not going to work. I mean, yes, once in a while there's great stories, but that's, you know, eventually you're going to have to come up with some capital and you're going to have to pay a pound of flesh. Yeah. So the more you can do out of cash flow and earnings, the less you give up, the less partners you have, the less, you know, chance that you're going to be that CEO on the outside looking in. Yeah, totally right. So, Jeff, I appreciate it. Before I ask you my last question, just let people know where they can find out more about you, whether it's on the law firm side or, the, you know, the, you mentioned your book a couple of times, where they can find that or anything else you want to, you want to let people know. Where do they find you? I'm at Faskin, so my email address is jdennis, D-E-N-N-I-S, at Faskin, F-A-S-K-E-N.com. You can reach me there, and I'm, I advise early-stage companies when I'm wearing my Faskin hat, and I also provide a board and advisory board services, as just a side gig, I guess, to call it that. And so that's, yeah, that's the best way to reach me. Awesome. I know it was a while back, but it was, it was a very popular book. What was the name of the book again? Lessons from the Edge. I think there's a few copies still around. Still, still around? It, uh, Got it. Yeah, on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, it. it's a collection of stories by entrepreneurs of their biggest mistakes and the lessons that they learned. The lessons are kind of uh, timeless. You know, I've gone back and reread it, you know, because it's 17 years later. You know, there's not a lot of, like, security issues with the Internet, Right. Right. (laughs) Or, you know, Facebook fake news in it. But some of the fundamental issues, they don't change. It doesn't matter. They do not change. There's five chapters. One's on sort of like the uh, strategy side. There's a chapter on like people and employees. There's a chapter on banking and finance. And there's a chapter on partners. And then the last chapter is on like the personal stuff. Well, all of those issues still exist. Still exist, totally. All right, so my last question I always ask on the podcast is that, for me, freedom is my highest ideal. And it relates to, for me, for everything from freedom, from all people, from oppression to why I'm an entrepreneur, right? And I don't don't work for somebody. But freedom means different things to different people. What does freedom mean to you, and how does it impact your life and business? I feel very lucky to live in Canada. You know, it's a free country it's a liberal uh, society. It's a diverse and inclusive country. And, you know, I, I feel pretty lucky to be Canadian, especially these days. That's kind of freedom. That's how it resonates with me right now. Love it. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. It was fun. Great to have you. 
Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.